Well, it's a pleasure to, and an honor to preach God's words again for you this week. We return to the book of James. We are going to be finishing chapter 3 by looking at verses 13 to 18 today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. You can also find it in your pew Bibles in front of you on page 1012. And you know, it's kind of really incredible in God's providence and and his sovereignty that in the season of preaching that as Craig has been talking about the ordinary means of grace, what we'll be discussing in the next two weeks in James lines up with everything that we've been hearing about the early church in Acts 2. You see, James is going to be the New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs, the wisdom book of the New Testament that aided Christians to consider how the gospel shapes and transforms their lives. The ordinary means of grace transformed the early church to acts of charity, to growth in grace, to love for the neighbor and the stranger and the multiplication of the saints. Not because they knew a bunch of things about Scripture, but rather that the means of grace transformed them to live wisely in the gospel. And so today, I want to talk to you about inside-out wisdom. Inside-out wisdom. Wisdom that is both outward-facing and in the heart. Wisdom that doesn't divide the body and the soul like the Greek Gnostics and the philosophies of, of the old age and the modern political and religious climate of today. Wisdom that comes from above reflects the great wisdom of Christ himself. And my hope is that the, the Holy Spirit would remind us something very important for all of us here about wisdom today, that, that wisdom is living. It is active. It's not just something to be thought about. So let's look at James 3, 13 to 18. Please stand if you're able as we read the words of the living God who gives us his word to us. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please be seated. Can we pray together as we dive into God's word today? Father, we pray that we would be a church of inside-out wisdom. That the body of Christ would be transformed now through the preaching of your word to be who we already are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let your spirit speak to our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strengths to love you and neighbor more and more. Lord, may your spirit speak powerfully here today. In Jesus' name, amen. The great theologian, uh, minister, and philosopher, uh, Francis Schaeffer, once said this about evangelism in particular, but, but about the Christian life in general, in his work, The God Who Is There. And I, I want to read this to you in full. Quote, I need to remind myself constantly that evangelism 
is not a game that I am playing. If I begin to enjoy it as kind of an intellectual exercise, then I am cruel and can expect no real spiritual results. As I push the man off his false balance, he must be able to feel that I care for him. Otherwise, I will only end up destroying him, and the cruelty and ugliness of it all will destroy me as well. Merely to be abstract and cold is to show that I do not really believe this person to be created in God's image. Now, what is Schaefer getting at here? What is he getting at when we're talking about Christian wisdom, about speaking truth in love? Inside-out wisdom is, is the understanding that the Christian faith is more than just an intellectual exercise or something that we dream about when we think of what the world should be, but just remains that, just a thought, a dream. This is one of the reasons why the book of James was written. It was a letter sent out to Christians in the dispersion to remind them that the Christian life was not just a mental agreement to the promises of God. It was a material action that was to be lived out in every aspect of their lives. Theology, the study of God, always leads to doxology, how it is lived out. And the danger of the bad theology that Schaefer was trying to avoid was one that believed that Christianity could be intellectualized to the world before it was lived to the world. And James reminds us that this isn't a concern or just a problem for Presbyterians in 2021, but but for Christians of every generation. That too often we talk a lot about Christianity and the Christian life rather than being the Christian life. And this is why these verses in verses 13 to 18 follow the exhortation of what we studied the last time we were in James about watching the tongue. You see, God's word isn't just there to tell us what not to do, but God's word is is giving us the antidote to the deadly poison of the tongue in verses 1 to 12. And in verse 13, he talks about wisdom being practiced inside and out. So look at verse 13. James begins by asking the question of who is wise and understanding among you? No doubt you have a really wise person that comes to your mind. Maybe a friend, a mentor, a teacher. But for James, it isn't a person here that he's talking about. It's the behavior and character of one who demonstrates wisdom and understanding. This rings true of many of life's sayings, that that one who talks the talk must walk the walk, that actions speak louder than words, that knowledge doesn't equate to wisdom. All these phrases that we've heard in our culture hold true because we we inherently understand that the accumulation of verifiable data does not amount to the application of virtuous deeds. If that were indeed the case, then all the know-it-alls in the world would be the most moral people on the face of planet Earth. (laughs) The smiles I see in this room demonstrate to me that you know that that's not the case. Rather, Scripture tells us that wisdom has a character. It has a unique, visible quality. And what is this quality? Humility and meekness. Humility and meekness. I have to pause here to talk about this word meekness because I don't think we, we fully grasp its meaning. What is meekness? It's, it's often a forgotten word in the Christian life. Meekness, to, to quote one biblical scholar, is the healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in dealing with our fellow men. Translation. If you know where you stand before a holy God, 
it will make you stand humbly before others. James is here is making a claim that would go completely against the grain of the Roman Empire worldview that dominated much of his readers. To be meek in the age of empires was to be weak. Meekness was considered to be a liability in every sphere of life. It resembled a pathetic posture in a world where the strong survived, where humility was frowned upon, where subtlety and nuance are hated on. Meekness is the worst of all possible options because the appearance of fragile humanity is a posture that nobody wanted to see. Now, it isn't just for the Greeks or the ancients, isn't it? But much of that same ethos has carried on today. After all, when was the last time you heard someone say on television, you know, I really don't have all the answers. There might be something to your disagreement with me that makes a lot of sense. When was the last time you read a headline that says, celebrity makes peace with his most bitter enemy? Or maybe even to make it more personal, when was the last time you went up to someone whom you hated, whom you vehemently disagreed with, and said with, with no qualification, I'm sorry for the way that I acted. It was wrong of me to be that way. You see, God's wisdom is not to take pleasure in being right with the people who disagree with you. A wisdom that is practiced inside out recognizes that as one of his image bearers, you are trying to win over, guess what, another image bearer. And that both of you are infinitely small compared to the overflowing wisdom of God. That should change your perspective on how you approach those who think differently than you. Makes you speak with greater humility and charity in those who are you trying to win over with your speech. The t-shirt that says, meekness is my superpower, probably won't sell much online, but it is prime capital in the kingdom of God. Thomas Manton the English Puritan who served as the stated clerk for the Westminster Assembly in the late 1600s, where major debates on the doctrines of the church were discussed, debated, argued, and even made headline news in the English newspapers, Thomas Manton knew something a little about meekness within Christian circles. His commentary on James reflected on the very nature of how we speak meekness with others. Listen to this. Charity should not... I'm sorry. Charity should consider... Not what follows of itself from any other opinion, but what follows in the conscience of those who hold it. A person may err in logic without erring in faith. And though you may show him the consequences of his opinion, you must not make him responsible for them. To make anyone worse than he is is the way to disgrace an adversary and not reclaim him. You see? Because when we disgrace others, it's not wisdom that is lived inside out, it's foolishness. Look at verses 14 and 15. It speaks of the reality of what happens when foolishness is lived inside out. This is our second point here today. Of the heart of foolishness is bitter jealousy. And that word in the original language for jealousy is actually the word for zeal. And that, now it's good to have zeal. We, we often say our God is a jealous God. He has a great zeal for his creation. He pursues us with, with passion and devotion. But, but James makes a qualification to this zeal. It's bitter jealousy, bitter zeal. It's the one that, that carries the taste of something foul. 
The instant that you eat of bitter jealousy, you will find that there is nothing pleasant about it. It's like that person who you know who enjoys tasting the hottest hot sauce in the world. They aren't doing it because it tastes good. They're doing it to show how others, how, how awesome they are and how weak everyone else is to them. It's, it's sort of selfish pride, ambition, to, to seek to only prop up the person that's doing it. Boasting seeks to edify no one else's life but their own. Boasting about trivialities and the lie about the reality of the world that you live in. If you are a fool and you act foolishly, not only are you a fool, but you have to convince others that you are not a fool and that you have to keep on propping yourself up in your accomplishments and the lies that you tell yourself. So there's a question here in verses 14 and 15 that James is trying to get at. And that is this. Where are you getting your wisdom from? And what does living out your wisdom look like? If your wisdom is all in videos that start with your favorite commentator destroys, in all caps, that commentator that you hate, or the liking of memes that are nothing but straw men in disguise, or the discipleship of podcasts and 24-hour news cycles that serve as, as your primary source of wisdom and hope more than the scriptures, prayer, and the sacraments, that isn't wisdom from above. Maybe common grace at best, to be sure, right? Maybe common grace that allows us to assert that all truth is God's truth. But if this is your main diet of wisdom, James has some really, really bad news for you. In fact, he has three characteristics of bad news in verse 15. And I'll go with them very quickly now. Number one, that this wisdom is not from above, but is earthly. It is earthly. Earthly here is, is something different than the word you used to describe the world. You see, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son. But the earth is the Lord and everything's in it. Yes, we, we would say that. But, but James, when he's using the word earthly here, he's not talking about it in the creation sense. Earthly here is, is temporary. It's transitory. It's the imperfect. It's, it's what has been impacted by sin and the fall. Earthly is the other fast food chicken sandwiches compared to Chick-fil-A, all right? One is going to last eternally forever while the others aren't going to make it, okay? All right, maybe Popeyes, maybe, maybe Popeyes, okay? Um, Earthly is forever. I'm sorry, earthly wisdom is not forever. It's going to be a moving target because its source is not in the timeless, ageless God whom all knowledge and wisdom remain. Earthly wisdom is earthly wisdom, earthly wisdom precisely because it constantly changes. It's reactive rather than foundational. It's changing rather than the unchanging God. It's based on limited knowledge, limited power, limited understanding on a time and a place. It is not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. There is no earthly wisdom that can be like wisdom from above. The second bit of bad news is that wisdom that is not from above is unspiritual. In other words, whereas whereas the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Unspiritual wisdom is living in the chains of sin and bondage to the slavery of that sin. The word unspiritual here literally can be translated as soulless meaning that everything pertaining to unspiritual wisdom is man-centered. 
Wisdom that is centered on man's ability, man's wisdom, man's effort. This man-centered wisdom is trying to do what mankind has always been trying to do since the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's trying to supplant God by believing that something else could give us a greater knowledge of good and evil than God could. The supremacy of mankind is always foolishness, and its foundation will always lead us to chaos. Third bit of bad news. The wisdom that is not from above is demonic. Demonic. Now, there are probably a lot of images that come into your mind when you think of the demonic, maybe even a Saturday Night Live skit featuring a church lady who's always saying Satan, right? But let me try and do something a little bit differently here and give you a little bit of a perspective of what demonic wisdom is. Westminster Larger Catechism, question seven, gives the question of what is God? What is God? And I want you to listen here. What is God? God is a spirit in of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. Now imagine everything opposite of that, and you've got demonic. You've got demonic wisdom. You've got a finite wisdom in dishonor. Cursed, imperfect, dependent, short-lived, ever-changing, ignorantly comprehensible, finite, limited in power, knowing nothing, most foolish, most impure, most unjust, most harsh and uncharitable, impatient and lacking in anything resembling goodness and truth. That's demonic. That's life apart from the wisdom of God. That's the reality of what James is presenting when we ascend to the Christian life but fail to embrace Christian wisdom. So I want to ask you, after hearing about this bit of bad news, how has the world, the flesh, and the devil robbed you of the wisdom that God is offering to you in the gospel? Where does your fountain of wisdom come from? Where do you drink the most insight on what your character, behavior, and posture towards the world looks like? And more importantly, perhaps, how's that going for you? What's coming inside out from that? You who are searching for a political solution without God, have you found the society that you're looking for yet? You who are searching for inner perfection apart from God, has that not led you to a greater hatred of yourself? You who are searching for rest apart from God, has that not just brought about more restlessness and wandering into your life? You who are searching for intimacy Apart from God, has that not just brought brought more heartbreak and the crushing burden of having a person trying to fill a hole that no person was meant to fill? How many times will the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil lie to you before you realize that God is offering you something greater in His Son, Jesus Christ? That God has revealed himself to you, his plan, his way, his wisdom in the words of this book. That you don't have to go searching for anything else than the sufficiency of his word to guide and lead you to God's pathway. That you are fundamentally wasting your time in searching for remedies that aren't rooted in Christ's truth. There is something better being offered to you here. Look at verses 17 and 18. 
Imagine the fruits of wisdom, as Craig has been saying the last several weeks. Imagine living a life that responds to the ordinary means of grace in a manner that demonstrates the Christ that we serve. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Imagine a bride of Christ that was as beautiful as these verses. A church whose main characteristic is not worldly bravado, being masked as courage, but but meek humility and grace. Imagine a church that did not contribute to the harsh divide in our culture and our world, but, but we're sowing peace by being peacemakers. Imagine me, this kind of church. We as a church find our ethics, find our character, find our joy in how to love others from a meek, suffering Savior. This humble king turning the wisdom of its world on its head by being the first king ever in history to inaugurate his kingdom by crucifixion. The Lamb of God who gives up his life for others so that others may live through his, the ultimate peacemaker who reconciles us as sinners, demonic, earthly, unspiritual, who reconciles us back to the Father and is interceding for us, making peace with the Father even now, interceding at the right hand of God the Father for us. It's Jesus who calls his church to make the peacemakers. He calls the peacemakers blessed. A Jesus who promises to be with us, wisdom personified, as we live out a practiced wisdom that reflects the very Christ that we worship. What kind of worship do we want to sow and reap here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church? How do we want the ordinary means of grace to shape us? Do we want to use the ordinary means of grace as our call to put on the full armor of God and be like the early church? Or do we hide behind a theological principle as an excuse to disengage from the Great Commission? You see, every stage of history of the Reformed Church has gone one way or another on this, to pursue godly wisdom or to pursue the foolishness of the demonic. We could be like Bonhoeffer, who saw the ordinary means of grace as a reason to rebel against Nazi Germany, or we could be like the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, who saw the ordinary means of grace as a way to support apartheid and disengage from the very people of God that God was calling them to serve. We could be the Reformed Church that used the ordinary means of grace to plead for the orphans and widows, leading to the greatest humanitarian and academic efforts that the world has ever known. The American Red Cross, the YMCA, the first 113 college and universities were Christian institutions to train pastors and leaders to be the very best scholars. Or we could be the Reformed Church that foolishly used the ordinary means of grace to build ingrown, dying churches that didn't want anything to do with the communities that surrounded it, to profess to love God while hating their neighbors. Here's the hard line that God's Word is presenting us here today. We as a church are either wise, living in the wisdom of God, or we as a church are fools. And what happens on the inside of the walls of this church will inevitably reflect its outpouring. We cannot fake it until we make it. 
We are either in Christ, being who we are as the body of Christ in wisdom, or we are blinded by our foolishness. We are either living out our mission statement that is printed on the very front of your bulletins, being community in Christ, or we are just simply a glorified affinity group, no different than the rest of the world. Um, I think every Christian needs a favorite dead theologian. One of my new favorite dead theologians is a missionary you might not have heard of. His, his name is Harvey Kahn. He was a former professor of missions at Westminster Theological Seminary. And prior to his tenure as a professor, he served as a missionary in South Korea for 12 years in the military bases where he would often be seen sharing the gospel with the women who were selling their bodies outside of these military bases. And what he realized in his time was that the woman for sure needed the gospel, to be absolutely clear. But the gospel lived out required him to more than just come in and preach a message and then just leave. The gospel proclamation forced him to realize that he needed to be with these women, to listen to their stories, to understand and respond with gentleness, full of mercy and good fruits, as James is writing to us. And as he understood their stories, he discovered much more about the plight of these women. You see, they were not only the result of their poor choices and their sin, but they were also victims by the men who were abusing them, the brothels that controlled them. They had become economically enslaved in a system to which they could not break free. And see, their dignity, their being sense of being loved by God, sense of hearing the call of the gospel were made all the more difficult because of the circumstances that surrounded their lives. And so Harvey Kahn writes this in his book called Evangelism. He says, I discovered that these women were not only sinners, but also sinned against. My background had oriented me almost exclusively to seeing a person as a subject of sin, but not the object of sin. Compassion, then, is more than just a maternal tenderness, sort of just saying that, oh, we have compassion on you. But it is tenderness translated into action. You see, Harvey realized that the powerful attraction of the gospel was made more alive and more real when the fruit of the spirits accompanied them. Harvey's job wasn't to intellectually convince these women of sin, but to show them that the power of God has given them something more to hope for in this life. Harvey realized that Christians live out the kingdom, both that is here and is coming, to reach those in greatest need of good news. The danger of believing that wisdom is intellectual is that we believe that Christians are, are, are remedying the world through criticism. But as we know, perpetual critics are highly ineffective at actually solving the problem at hand. Christians will rightly criticize false ideologies and false theologies in the world, and we should. But we must be more than mere critics. Christians now, as Christians have always done, must lead in wisdom on what a real future looks like and then doing the hard work of pursuing God's kingdom together. James ends the section in verse 18 by reminding us that wisdom is a harvest, that we must plant the seeds of wisdom in the fruit of the Spirit. We must be the kinds of Christians who get our hands dirty in practicing wisdom because we know out of this hard labor comes the righteousness of God in everything. To quote the late, great J.I. Packer, 
Christianity is not a barren tree. The godly are the best neighbors. Everyday actions are done out of a spirit of grace. If the great fault of some people, I'm sorry, it is the great fault of some people that when they begin to be religious, they leave off being human. As if the only tree that grew in Christ's garden was the crab apple. And when we are reminded that this manner of wisdom is lived out, we follow the pathway of wisdom personified. You see, Scripture speaks about this everywhere, and I'll just spoil it for you. The person of wisdom in Proverbs, the person of wisdom in the New Testament is Jesus Christ coming into the world incarnationally to intimately bring the good news that all the law and the prophets are complete in him. To have compassion as Christ did on the hurting, the poor, the lame, the leper, the Syrophoenician Gentile woman, the Roman pagan centurion, the Pharisee who asks him what it means to be born again, the tax collector who finds himself unredeemable, the zealot who denies him three times, the marginalized, the demon-possessed. Jesus lived out wisdom not just in word but in deed. Taking these ordinary means of grace and living them out tangibly in such profound meekness and humility and showed the world in need of what inside-out wisdom could do. He fed the hungry. He calls us to clothe the neighbor, to welcome the stranger, to bring Jew and Gentile together, to be united to Christ. Also, we could be brought to the table of the Lord to celebrate and bask in the peace of Christ that Christ has won for us. Redeemer, my prayer for this church is as we think about what we look like as a church in the next season of life that we are going through, that we will consider how Christ and wisdom will live inside out through us, that we pick up our plows, we get our hands dirty, and we sow peace through the wisdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to be a people of wisdom. Lord, in the mind, in the heart, to be sure, yes, but also outwardly, in the meekness of good conduct, in the meekness of gentleness, open to reason, impartial, sincere, being peacemakers, and having a harvest of righteousness. God, help us through the power of your Son to be a community in Christ. We thank you for Christ modeling this for us, inviting us to the great feast of the kingdom of God. And until that day, may we do the work of the kingdom here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.